morning, good afternoon, good evening, good night. Whichever part of the world and whatever time zone you are joining us from, welcome to the Black Consciousness Festival's weekend of conversations about reparations, claiming what is rightfully ours, 185,435 days late and trillion short. The Black Consciousness Festival is a global online platform for the commemoration, celebration, and sharing of vital histories and stories that boost the awareness and impact of the pride, power, and practice of people of African descent. Our inaugural year was the magical and historical 2020, where we curated a month of conversations and activities around topics of Black consciousness. Earlier this year, we had our youth festival, and now our weekend of conversations and reparations. The Black Consciousness Festival is continuing the building of awareness around how each of us can take the necessary steps for restitution, healing, <coughs> and reparation repair. For more information about the festival, visit our website, theblackconsciousnessfestival.com. My name is Nicholas Ward, and as part of the Black Consciousness Festival team, I am humbled to introduce our second conversation today, entitled Reconstituting, Restoring and Reconstructing, What is Reparatory Justice and Why? With Professor Eliza Bakken and Jessica Ann Mitchell Ayujo, led by Omari Ashby. Omari Ashby is a Rapso artist, music producer, adjunct lecturer at the Department of Creative and Festival Arts at the University of the West Indies, and a PhD candidate of cultural studies. In the past decade, Omari established a program for the training and development of young talent and musical enthusiasts, and was instrumental in the development of a digital sound engineering course adapted by YTEP for their academic agenda. We thank you for joining and tuning into our Zoom webinar and Facebook live stream. Feel free to share anything that resonates with you and make sure to tag us on Facebook and Instagram. Enjoy. Thank you, Nicholas. Uh, thank you. Good evening, good morning, good afternoon, good night, as he said, um, wherever you are, wherever you're joining us from. Um, I'm glad to be here with Professor Barkan, as well as Miss, Miss, do I have it right? Miss Ayur. Yeah, um, and Professor Barkan is Professor of International and Public Affairs at Columbia University, Director of CIPA's Human Rights and Humanitarian Policy Concentration, Director of Columbia's Institute for Study of Human Rights. He's also the author of The Guilt of Nations, Restitution and Negotiating Historical Injustices and Reparations, A Moral and Political Dilemma. Jessica Ann Mitchell Ayuor is a cultural communications expert, author, publisher based in the United States of America in Washington, D.C. area. She's also the founder of the National Black Cultural Information Trust. And I would like to welcome you both to this conversation today. Um, in this weekend of conversations that are so important um, going forward in the discussions of reparations, and restitution. Um, welcome to you both. Thank you for having me. Great. Welcome to you, you, Professor Barkan, as well. Thank you very much. I'm very yes. pleased to be with you today. Yeah. As we start this this discussion, um, we just like to take a moment to to to, to acknowledge the, those ancestors and the people who went before us, whose shoulders we stand on. Um, and through whose struggle we are here and able to have the discussion, um, yeah? So let's get into the, to the matter, yeah? Where reparations and, and, and restitution and that level of justice is concerned. Um, this weekend is dedicated to that kind of discussion and that I think is important for people of African descent throughout the diaspora, throughout the world. Um, and I would like to start with you, um, Jessica, and just in terms of bringing us to, 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 to up to speed with what is your engagement with reparations? Okay, well, I'm part of the, I, I'm the founder of the National Black Cultural Information Trust. And what we've noticed over the past few years is an uptick in conversations about reparations, but also a lot of misinformation, cultural misinformation surrounding reparations. So one of the things that uh, we made one of our top priorities is providing a platform and, and promoting uh, longtime reparationists 
So we've partnered with the National Coalition of Blacks for Reparations in America multiple times to host uh, panel discussions and webinars on HR 40 and uh, the overall reparations movement. And what we're doing on our website is providing um, information, resources, and tools for, for folks to, um, to kind of guide people in the right direction for factual information concerning reparations movement. As it continues to go on, there's, there's a lot of different confusion online. So we hope to provide that clarity to help people move forward. Thank you. I'm Professor Bakan. Uh, in terms of, um, just give us a, a, an idea of your involvement in reparations, uh, in terms of your background and maybe how you, how you came to be. Thank you very much. So reparation, restitution, compensations are different categories and acknowledgements are different categories for something that is vague, it's not concrete, and it's a result of dialogue between descendants of perpetrators and descendants of victims. So I've been engaged with the work on reparation for over two decades because this, is, this has become a part of human rights movement and the reparation or restitution, we'll talk about the differences later, but can be approached in different ways. Now, although as I, I agree with Jessica that although uh, the movement for reparation has been long, has been going for quite long for African descendants. It has taken up a different momentum after Black Lives Matter became a national and an international movement. So um, when I published my book on the guilt of nations, it was a global survey of reparation and I devoted one chapter only to African descent because there were a committee of eminent people in Africa that was led, led by Nigeria, and there was in Cobra and something else, and few others in the US. But most of the reparation resulted of, from work of indigenous peoples, a lot of post-colonial, and a lot of post-Cold War period. But there was very little for African descent that they could. So for instance, uh, in Congress, the American Congress, in, in the US Congress, people could not even get the support for a study of reparation. And that has changed a lot. Now there is a lot of talk of reparation of African descent. We are having a project we, I mean, in Columbia University, are having a project with Howard University, with Thurgood Marshall Center of African American Redress Network, where we map and try to provide capacity building to all the to everyone who's engaged with it. And there are hundreds of attempts to do one or another part of reparation. So the, this is a very exciting time. And I think that we are in, on the verge of making it a much more public movement. So there are multiple layers. I think that I would say that to, to shorten it to one sentence, reparation is a global movement that depends on the relationship of the politics and the lobbying of the victims and the willingness of the perpetrators to accommodate and to redress. We can give examples, but I won't dominate, I don't want to dominate the conversation. Thank you. Uh, so as, 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 and so that definition you just gave, I think, I think it's a, it's a good jump off point for us in terms of um, establishing what, what we can see reparations as. But you mentioned that there's a, there's a difference between reparations and restitution. I don't know if you want to elaborate on that a little bit. Certainly. The, there is repression and restitutions are different. It depends if they are 
raised in a legal perspective, in a cultural perspective, in political. So restitution is usually to bring something back to the same status that it was before the crime has been committed. But one thing that I think we should all make clear absolutely at the beginning of things is that we're talking about atrocities and crimes against humanity that cannot be manageable, imagined. So there is never, never, and we can talk about any movement that you want, but there is never adequate compensation. There is never adequate restitution. There is never adequate reparation. However, we want to use the terms that are different, they are different, they're used differently, but they convey the very same thing, which is to attempt to redress the unimaginable. So, depends how strong the victims or their descendants are politically, and depends how willing the perpetrators, but that is, there is no right place to get to it. And then we can say that we have achieved reparation. Reparation is a process. It's ongoing, it begins with acknowledgement, it begins with activism, and then it continues to the negotiation. So I'll give you one example, which is preparation for the Holocaust for Jews. It happened in the early 50s, it started in the early 50s, and this material operations were about $1 billion for 1 billion marks. It has gone since then between Germany and Israel and Germany and the Jews to have reached more than 100 billion. Now that's a lot of money in some respects, but it's not compared to the, uh, compared to the violence that was inflicted, compared to the genocide, compared to the ability of Germany to pay. It's all, an ongoing process. So I don't see, I don't imagine the movement for reparations for African descendants to reach a point where we'll get, okay, that's the right number or that's the right component. It's a movement and it's ongoing and it will go on for a long time and it will be available on the local level, on the federal level, on the global level and people learn from each other, and it, uh, there is a growing uh, belief that equality and human rights can be achieved only through addressing also past violence. I hope that answers your question. Yeah, yeah, thoroughly too. You, you, you covered it thoroughly. That was, that was pretty good. And, and I like the idea of it being a process. Now, Jessica, and, um, I don't know if you could possibly take us through maybe a kind of historical view of what the struggle for reparations has been in the US, um, kind of bringing us up to date, up to, to this point actually, and, and give us a, a survey of the land as the way it stands. Okay, sure. So I'll give a, a brief overview because of course it's a lot of yeah, uh, yeah. information, but uh, we've been struggling for our humanity and freedom since the beginning. Um, descendants of Africans enslaved in the United States, Deus. And um, one of the earliest documented calls for reparations uh, by Deus is uh, David Walker's appeal in 1829 when he cried out in those four articles about the uh, the inhumanity of America and hypocrisy of America and how it needs to um, uh, act and atone for what it has done to African peoples in this land. Then in 1898, there was a uh, Cali Guy House who was uh, an ex-slave from Tennessee. She was the leader of the National Ex-Slave Mutual Relief Bounty and Pension Association where she called on reparations um, for uh, Deus for descendants of Africans enslaved in the United States. Um, and there, at one point she had, there were about 300,000 members of this association. 
Then going into the 1960s, there was an organization of Black radicals called the Republic of New Africa. In 1969, um, one of their main mantras was free the land. And they had this um, idea of taking five of the key southern states where Black people were enslaved in and having the U.S. government hand us over those five states and creating a Black nation within a nation. And one of the members of the Republic of New Africa was Audley Queen Mother Moore, and she is known as the um, mother of the modern day reparations movement. She founded a, a number of organizations, including a co-founder of the Republic of New Africa. And um, she is known for her famous refrain, somebody has to pay. And she actually demanded $400 billion from the US government for reparations. And she was part of the inspiration for INCOBRA, which is the National Coalition of Blacks for Reparations in America, and that was founded in 1987. One of its members, uh, a man named Raymond Jenkins, his nickname was Reparations Ray because he talked about reparations so much. Um, he actually, his congressman was Congressman John Conyers, and he used to uh, come to him all the time to talk about reparations. We need something for reparations. And so he was, re Reparations Ray was the inspiration behind uh, HR 3745, which later now is known in its current state as HR 40. Um, and, and Cobra was very much involved in the process of that legislation, as, is, uh, as was Reparations Ray and John Conyers continuously brought up this rep this uh, legislation for the whole 30 years up until he retired. And then it was taken up by uh, Representative Sheila Jackson Lee, who is now the lead sponsor of H.R. 40. Uh, H.R. 40 is named after a special order, um, special field order 15 that was issued by General Sherman in 1865, where he was going to uh, allot 40 acre plots for African Americans. Um, and what happened is that decision was reversed by President Andrew Johnson, and so it didn't come into fruition. And so that's why H.R. 40 was changed from its old name to H.R. 40 as an indicator of that broken promise of the 40 acres and a mule that uh, many people reference. Um, so as of now, we, are, we have reached a historic moment because the House Judiciary Committee for the first time ever, uh, for the over 30 years that this legislation has been introduced, this is the first time that the House Judiciary Committee has voted to move HR 40 to the House for a vote on the House floor. And that is where we are today with H.R. 40. Um, however, there's not just a national push for reparations, there's local pushes. So um, the city of Evanston um, in Chicago, uh, uh, the city of Evanston in Illinois, um, recently passed their own um, legislation to provide a type of reparatory justice um, in the in the area of housing, where they would give money for people that lived in Evanston for a certain time period that they could document had um, endured housing discrimination, and they could provide monies towards house repair or a down payment for a home or that sort of thing. And there are a lot of different uh, initiatives. There's something in California where they're putting together a task force. There's things happening, um, there's Asheville, North Carolina, there's things happening across the country currently that are not just uh, na national focused on HR 40, but also local. Um, uh, we just recently commemorated the 100 years of the Tulsa race massacre. Um, there was some issues back and forth, but the, the remaining survivors will receive $100,000 each in reparations. Um, there was some talk of additional monies going to a reparations fund. I'm unclear on where that settled, but that is where we are right now. Okay, thank you. Um, and, and 
I was looking at some information on, on the Tulsa issue, and there was there, there there seemed to be some discrepancy between the descendants. Who there was there was this I think there was a um, a walk they, they they paid the city paid a lot of money for this pathway to justice, um, and at the same time that was being launched, there seemed to be a whole different marking of, of, of the moment by another, um, by, by the descendants themselves. So they chose not to take part in the launch of this pathway, I think, which the city spent a couple million dollars on. Um, and so they were complaining that, that that money went to this walk that was supposed to commemorate and be some part of the reparations, but it really didn't rebound to the people to who it mattered. I am bringing that up to, and this could go for, for either of you, that discrepancy between who is supposed to receive these reparations and, and, and the money or other, or because we have to discuss that too when it goes beyond money, but any, any benefits that, that might be accrued, that, that disparity that, that happened particularly in Tulsa, is that something that, that you all see as something that is common where, where the idea of, okay, so this money is being spent as part of this restitution and this this reparations, but uh, the people who 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 see themselves as as to be the beneficiaries of this are not being um, compensated in, in a particular way. Well, for Tulsa, um, I think the issue was it wasn't a specific reparations campaign. Like it wasn't a specific uh, thing like Evanston the city council, there was like meetings, there were community forums. It was a specific repertory, uh, I can't speak today, reparations push for um, the, the local population. For Tulsa, they were more focused on the commemoration. So it, it seemed as if once it got down to the survivors and the descendants, there, the discrepancy came from the commemorative position of the city, and then reparations seemed to be kind of an afterthought. Uh, there was a deal in early on to provide uh, $100,000 to the survivors and then two, two million into a reparations fund and it kind of fell through and then it came back, but it wasn't like the ultimate goal. So I think that's where a lot of the issues came in because it money was focused on the commemoration and this billion this building three thirty million dollars was raised but 20 million dollars went into a building and so that is what raised those issues uh, so i think it's a bit different than when a local initiative is started specific from the beginning with the idea with the thought and the purpose of reparations and even when that happens there's still those discrepancies Part of the, one of the main things that, that we have to address is the descendants make the decision on what reparations truly is for themselves. And so there can be discrepancy among descendants, discrepancy among others, you have to come to a consensus, but everyone doesn't always do that. Um, even with Evanston, there was some issues, people going back and forth on if they felt it was truly reparations or if it was enough. Um, but that's just going to continue as we have these conversations and, and, and um, local initiatives earn out these processes for themselves. And again, for, for both of you, we, we are discussing, and, and it came up a couple of times, uh, monetary figures um, for reparations. But what does reparations look like beyond um, a monetary figure or payment? So the UN has five categories of reparation. They look at restitution, compensation, rehabilitation, satisfaction, and guarantees of non-repetition. Number four is satisfaction. And let me focus on this for a moment, because this is, as I said, is a process. And the most important part of the process is the first one is education. And people, people just don't know how horrific the experience of slavery was, of Jim Crow, of incarceration. 
it has to be to be a massive educational process. This is satisfaction. So a lot of projects, Jessica mentioned preparation, but most of the local projects are educational. Is why to remove certain monuments, why to build other monuments, what kind of museum. There is a debate now about critical race theory and teaching in the school level. So, and that is difficult because we are talking about a process that involves groups that are otherwise don't have shared governmental structure. So there'll be many vocal units, movement, uh, projects on this local level, and some people are focusing on the federal level. And when money, the money will come later on. At the moment, we have to establish a structure that can represent the people, that can represent the descendants. We, do we look at Evanston as adequate reparation? Well, it's clearly helpful to have few tens of thousands of dollars per family to improve their housing condition. But that cannot be accounted for all the racial abuse and atrocities over the decades. So the numbers that are flowing around, you mentioned 400 billion before, there are people talking about trillions, trying to quantify the, the, horror, the horrific suffering, but that will never be the case. I don't believe that we will come up and there will be an agreement to reach a complete, uh, over, over a comprehensive sum. Instead of that, what I think is going to happen, and this is a prediction based on studying different movements rather than just African-American. But I think that what would happen will be a lot of many provisional steps. There'll be cultural acknowledgement, there'll be political acknowledgement. People will have to learn much more about the suffering that racism entails. And there'll be steps on the way that will include some money. Who would be the ones to, to uh, benefit from that will depend how the movement goes. I don't think it's preconceived. It's not necessarily a structure that we can um, uh, recognize that exists. It will, be, it will need to be built. And there'll be conflicts. There'll be conflict between survivors, uh, whether all blacks are subject to reparation, where only blacks that were, have ancestors as slaves. There are many difficult questions, none of which has a specific and correct answer. It has to be a dialogue between the groups, and one hopes that the local level will legitimize much more the reparation as a concept. And that would be something that it's very difficult, but it, it is necessary. I, for one, don't think, but that's my own private opinion. I don't think that throwing trillions of num numbers of trillions of dollars actually uh, make the reparation more likely. I think that it shows more the anxiety and the suffering, the, it's an example of suffering that people see. But I think the main question that faces the reparation movement is how do we persuade the dominant group in the country, basically the whites, how do we present, represent whites to be part of a reparation movement and to accept it? And that is a long and difficult process to go through. But as I said, when I started, I'm very optimistic that we are for the first time actually on the way to achieve that. And Jessica mentioned some things that have changed, but generally there is much more 
openness to discuss reparation than it was until five years ago. Um, and one of the things that I, that I would like to, to, to look at too is the African-American situation is a particular situation. And then there are situations that what obtains like um, perhaps in the Caribbean. So, so for the CARICOM Reparations Commission, you're not dealing with um, the ruling government, but you're dealing with uh, the, the people who would have um, whatever colonizers and whatever. So you have a, a slew of different countries that may have to be um, dealt with and negotiated with. And, and I know that the, the commission came up with uh, a, a 10 point plan, I believe that that was, um, I suppose, similar to, to ones that, that obtained elsewhere, where, where, one, where, where some of the things they spoke to is a full formal apology, repatriation, an indigenous people's development program, cultural institutions, public health care, um, illiteracy eradication, and African knowledge programs, psychological rehabilitation, which of course is important, technical, um, technical te technology transfer, sorry, and debt cancellation are some of the things that they were looking at. This is from the um, CARICOM restitution um, commission, the CARICOM repatriate. Reparations Commission, sorry. And they, they were looking at this 10-point plan. Uh, uh, and I, so, so that difference you have where the African-Americans are looking to the administration of, of the USA, whereas um, for a lot of other countries, you are looking at your former colonizers. Uh, so, so I don't know if you all could speak to that dynamic. Jessica, you want to go first? Sure. Um, well, uh, the National African American Reparations Commission also has a 10-point plan very similar to CARICOM's that starts with the formal apology um, that looks not just to um, cash payouts as a form of reparations, but also uh, possible um, community-based programs, uh, restructuring, that sort of thing. Um, this the situation with um, Deus is very, it's, it's specific, but it has a lot of intricacies in it um, that Professor Barkin raised, especially concerning who receives what. There's, um, uh, but getting back to your question about who do you go to, we're, we are having these discussions about whether or not internally we should start with 1619, or 1776 as a starting point for um, our reparations demands. The general consensus is we can start at 1619, being that even when the United States broke off from Britain and created their own nation, they continue, there was a continuation of that enslavement and the benefits of the um, of the enslavement of African people transferred over into the United States and continued on. Um, but there's also that discrepancy on uh, who gets what and when it starts. Um, we, I think that for the African American uh, situation, part of it, part of it that, part of what makes it so difficult is there's not one set group of people that came here and were enslaved. We have those, we have people that came in from the Caribbean first and then were enslaved in the United States as well. We have folks that were um, descendants of Africans enslaved here that then were part of families that fled to another nation. Um, those are part of the conversations. How do we include the Afro-Mexicans that were originally a part of us? Do we include the Liberians? Do we, who do we include in this, this justice claim in this call? That is part of the ongoing discussions about the, the African-American condition in, in terms of reparations. I will say, uh, going back to uh, what Professor Barkin was speaking on earlier, um, there, the National Coalition of Blacks for Reparations in America actually has five key injury areas for reparations for African Americans. 
it begins with our peoplehood. So it definitely does include like the the apology, the recognition of who we are culturally. Um, I believe also the, the demolishing of the Confederate statues and other racist memorabilia that surrounds us on a daily basis. Um, it also includes health, economic justice, criminal justice reform, education. Um, so it's not seen as something that's just, these are the five key injury areas. And it's not just seen as something that is just a cash payout, but it is an ongoing process. It is more than money. Um, it, in part of the peoplehood aspect also ties into what Professor Barkin was speaking on with education and goes back into that overall theme of the reclamation of African humanity as who we are, because that was one of the first things attacked in the process of our enslavement was the attack on our humanity as a people. So there are a lot of different things at play here in terms of uh, the Black American call for reparations, but um, it is an ongoing process. And there are a lot of things that um, still need to be hashed out, which is part of the importance of HR 40. Um, there are some people that are upset that we're still talking about a study, but this is such a, this issue is so wide in a, in a scope that we do need a type of a study that can help us tie in all of these different components to move us forward past just the call for cash payout. However, it is still very essential to many reparations that money be included in forms of reparative justice for deus. Thank you, Jessica. If I can follow, uh, or do you want to ask a different question? No, you can follow. So, I think that every aspect of what you mentioned is correct and important, but all of those are also problematic. Because consider for a moment acknowledgement. What is an acknowledgement of? Is the acknowledgement only for slavery or for Jim Crow, incarceration, lack of education, discrimination everywhere? If that's the situation, then you do need to have a study. The study that we need to have is not only to educate African-American or Black in the US about the suffering. They know it very well. They, they've lived it. The education, the study has to be for the majority. To be, to be, you can't assume that the majority would vote for acknowledgement or for reparation of a magnitude that is significant if they don't, if they are unfamiliar with it. We have to remember that most of the people have not experienced it. And what they experience now is incarceration. Now, is it of descendant of slaves that it's limited to? Or are those blacks or any black person falls in that category? So there has to be a lot of aspects. None of it is self-evident, although it seems that if you ask what is reparation for slavery, that's the main, that's a, non, a way of starting it simply but it's really much more complicated than this. Let me add, give you another example, for, which is closer to the question that you have asked. I'll give two examples, Omari, just briefly. The US Virgin Islands used to be a colonial out, output, colonial outpost of Denmark. And when the people were asked I had a student who wrote her PhD on that. So part of what she did was to ask, to do a survey in the US Virgin Islands, who wanted reparation from Denmark and who wanted and didn't want. And more what the people wanted by the, according to that survey was, they wanted tourists more than they wanted reparation. They wanted prosperity. Not to, not to struggle. Now that they didn't know what was in the past, that might explain it. But altogether, the idea is that most of the points that uh, Jessica mentioned or Omari, you mentioned, refer to 
issues that have to be done in any case. Health, equality, education, development, those are issues that the governments have responsibility to in any case. Forget reparation for a moment. Inequality is an ongoing racist approach and racist policies, and those have to be addressed. Now, if we call it reparation, the question is, does it bring it through sooner? Does it make it more powerful? And that can be, brings me to the second example that I had, and that is Germany occupation, German colonial power up to, up to World War I in Africa, in South, Southwest Africa, which is today Namibia. And in Namibia, there was a genocide of the Herero and the Nama people, which is considered the first genocide in the 20th century. Now, Namibia and Germany are happy to come to a conclusion or to an agreement about how much to pay development money to Namibia, but not to compensate for genocide the Herero. So you have a local group that suffers genocide, but the government that represents them, Namibia, has different interests. So who, who are you going to deal with the, in the Caribbean? Are you gonna deal with England, with the US? Are you going to, give, to deal about development or reparation for individuals? So this is all so complicated at the moment because we don't have a single voice and we're unlikely to have a single voice coming from the Caribbean. But the coalition at the moment is advancing the demands very much. The question is whether it will include also personal reparation and personal reparation for what? For until when is the suffering? Are African descendants who are recently in the US in the last generation or two come as migrants? Are they part of the, the group that need to be repaired, to redress? These things are open-ended and should be discussed. And that's why a study is a very important first step. But I think that to decide what is it that you want, it depends on who is involved in the coalition building. And that is, there's a lot of work to do there. It's important work, but there's a lot of work to be done there. Thank you, Professor. Um, so, so one of the things I, uh, that, that it occurs to me is, is, so for some places, and this, this may be, this may be um, I, may, I may not have the entirety of, of, of the argument here. So, so, so for a country like Haiti, it seems pretty straightforward um, that France has a responsibility to Haiti for to, to one for, for for the idea of them having to pay France um, over how many years and and so for me that that situation is a kind of straightforward one. So so I, and I'm saying this to say, are there some straightforward or perhaps low hanging fruit situations that that can be pushed forward um, in a less contentious way, because that, that to me, and again, I could be wrong, that to me is kind of straightforward. After the Haitian Revolution, um, Haiti was made to pay compensation to France. Uh, and to me, that, that seems a pretty straightforward argument that could be made on behalf of Haiti to the French government. And, and, and and, and this, that particular situation may, may be able to, to, to be a kind of arrowhead, a leading point in terms of reparations. Again, I could be wrong, but, but, but I think a situation like that might be simpler than most. I don't know what you guys do. I would love to hear Jessica saying, talking about low hanging fruit. Well, I think that, um it goes back into this conversation of if there was to be, if France was to pay reparations to Haiti, what would that look like in terms, and how would people conceive of it? Should it go through the government? As in like, would it be a dispersal similar to what happened in Namibia where the money is 
sewn into the government or would it include some type of effect on a personal level to the people of Haiti where they see specific individual payouts and money? I think even in that situation, it wouldn't be so simple and straightforward yeah. because people have different ideas. Haitians have different um, uh, thoughts on their government <laughs> and, and um, how that should go about. I think it's, I don't think in any of these situations there is a simple solution or answer. But I do think that, um, I do think in the Haitian conversation, it is more, I think it is more straightforward than the African-American situation where we have this influx of different people of African descent um, over, this, over this time period. Not to say that Haiti doesn't, but in a, in a, in a larger level. Um, one thing that I can, I wanted to go back to something that Professor Barkin um, raised, because this is a conversation that we continue to have. Um, number one, yes, slavery is more, I mean, it's not slavery, reparations is more than for slavery. So the position of some U.S.-based reparationists is it should include other Black people, but based on the time period. So there would be some type of reparations for those of us that who ancestors were enslaved here. And then it would include uh, reparations for certain time periods. What happened in Jim Crow? What happened during the civil rights movement? What happened during these time periods where people were shut out from certain resources that would include black immigrants that came in the, to the United States, which is part of what Evanston did in their model. They didn't, it wasn't just for uh, descendants of Africans enslaved here was for Black people that lived in Evanston during that time period that they selected that they know for a fact also endured similar housing discrimination. Um, so those are some of the different ways in which people are tackling that, but it is something that needs to be studied more and addressed. The second issue is the conversation of how do we convince essentially white people that they need to support reparations. And unfortunately, unfortunately, there are white Americans that believe in reparations and that support it, but it is, it is far more minimal. And unfortunately, the, the, the historical situation for us is that every time African Americans have advanced in this country, it has been against the majority. It has been against the majority rule uh, desegregation, all of that. It wasn't a decision that the majority of white people made. Um, and so I'm unsure if we will get um, reparative justice, if we focus, I'm not sure if we should focus so much on getting the majority population to come along because we have never been in that situation where um, We've always been in this situation. We've had to fight for everything, for every step of the way against majority thoughts or wants. Um, I can say that since the George Floyd protests and Black Lives Matter, there has been a, a, a huge societal push looking at injustices <coughs> targeting Black people. And that has helped with getting more attention and awareness on race-based injustice and reparations in general but it still has not included the masses of white America. And I'm unsure really how that could come about. And if we pivoted to spend time on that, how much time would be wasted in that attempt? I was asked last week about what about the business argument for reparations? What if we said, um, you're lo there was art there's some article that came out saying, millions, trillions of dollars have been lost due to racism by businesses. And what if we put the reparations argument in this business conversation to say, look, this will actually help businesses if we do, if we focus on black prosperity economically, that kind of thing, and, 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 it, and focus on showing people how it would help their businesses. 
from me working in fair housing movement and other movements like that, I've seen how you will have the money and the corporations and the businesses don't care because the racism is so entrenched that they would rather lose money than see us benefit economically. I've seen they, have, they, would, they would destroy their own properties rather than keep it up because it's in a black neighborhood. It is a very difficult situation um, in terms of if we were to spend so much focus on um, getting white buy-in. And I'm not saying that we shouldn't. I think that what the United States need is a massive re-education program, which we're seeing. But as you can see, with just the pushback of critical race theory, which is not a radical theory, just to push back on that with all the misinformation flying and the that most that is so steeped in racism that you see that even that itself will be difficult. It, it's it, it's it's not it, it, I don't I'm not sure how we would do that process because the racism in itself pre prevents that type of movement. So if we focus so much on white buy-in or approval, how far will we really get? I, I hear that just. Let me just perhaps, since you're going to close in a little while, give you my optimistic perspective. So, so what, 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 what I would want as we are rounding out on the hour, is that perhaps we 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 could have our, our final statements now, and I and I like that you are going with this optimistic um, perspective, Professor Vargas. So let's hear. I agree, I agree with Jessica that it is so comprehensive the racism that we need to in, to confront it on multiple levels. So Evanstone is one example. There could be many Evanstone. That is a, this is a major educational effort because we look at the reparation, we don't look at the community in general of what it has gone through and transformed. Georgetown University now has, again, it's a little reparation to descendants who were enslaved by the university. It's very local, it's very specific, but you get the student body to vote for a tax, so to speak, in which people will support the African-American descendant. There are multiple cases. So for instance, a low-hanging fruit is it's difficult, it's not easy, but it's relatively low-hanging, is doing away with confederate symbols and memorials. And developing understanding at the local level of what it all happened. So I think that the, the first optimistic is you need to persuade the persuadable people to support you. If we go into try and uh, support the Trump's idea of what the US is, and this is our level of expectation, that would be a waste of time as Jessica mentioned. But there are a lot of people who just are not supporting it because they are not aware of what is involved. For us, who are involved in this issue greatly, it seems that everybody knows what we are talking about. But I'm sure that there are people who are listening here now and they say, what did she say? What did she say? Is that like, because we are not familiar, we, we use things that we need a massive educational program. And that's not formal education. This is community uh, education. This is about particular individual uh, that needs to fight over and to educate. In the process, there'll be some minimal reparations that will be paid at local level. And the importance is not that it's going to enrich any descendant or victim, but it's going to provide education similar to that. So now there'll be people at different universities working on it, students are working on it, changing the institutional uh, disposition to reparation. So I would say we should focus the optimistic party 
that it's going to take long time, it's difficult, but we should focus on the local process. Leave the, the federal level to NCOBRA and to other national movements, not not to do it, but for people who want to participate and want to see results sooner, I think that would be on the process, on the level of the, of the local level. Thank you. And, and Jessica, for you, in Sure, I do think that there, we could definitely embrace a level of optimism. Um, there's so much widespread support of uh, the reparations movement for African-Americans by people of many different backgrounds. And I think um, it is very key, this this recent push surrounding George Floyd and his life and the public lynching that re-emphasize um, what we go through on a daily level here as, as deus for over the last 400 years. I think it's also very encouraging that Japanese Americans, descendants of those that were um, in the internment camps are supporting African-American reparations um, they received in 1988 uh, 1.6 billion that went towards 82,000 people to the tune of like $20,000 each. Um, it is also important that we have the support of indigenous people in this, in this ongoing fight and that we have the Pan-African world <laughs> um, in support. I think it's very important what happened in Durban at the World Conference Against Racism in 2001, when the Pan-African world got together and pushed for um, slavery to be uh, recognized as a crime against humanity. And I think that as we continue to have these conversations, um, the encouraging part is that we're learning from each other, that we can build based on these conversations, what the work of CARICOM, the work of NARC, the work of NCOBRA, the work that is going on on the continent in terms of reparations. So I do think that there is, that we could certainly be optimistic towards this ongoing movement and keep in the forefront of our minds that reparations is more than money, that it's about our peoplehood, it's about our humanity and, and full restoration of ourselves. Thank you so much. And, and I'd like to thank both of you for joining us today. Um, Professor Eliza Barkan and Jessica Ann Mitchell Ayur. Um, thank you so much. Um, two of the big takeaways from, from, for this, from today's discussion for me is the um, point that you made, Jessica, that the reclamation of African humanity is absolutely necessary. And Professor Barkan, you said that this is an ongoing process. And I think those two points are really important, um, along with everything else that was said. And I want to thank you so much for joining us and sharing your knowledge. And for those of you who joined us online and in the via Zoom, I want to thank you as well. And I want to turn it over once again to Nicholas so he can take us home. Thank you very much for having me. I just want to say this was a very good conversation and keep up the good work. Thank you. Yes, thank you for having me as well. Thank you, Mari, for facilitating this very insightful conversation between Professor Eliza Barkan and Jessica Ann Mitchell Ivo. And thank you, our viewing audience, for joining the Black Consciousness Festival's weekend of conversations and reparations.